You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. We're going to uh, kind of fly through a few slides here. Uh, I hope you have, this is the, one of the more difficult lectures because it's the post-prandial lecture, everybody's hypoglycemic. And, right, exactly. So in that case, I just throw a lot of extra slides in, so we're going to go fast. So uh, bear with me, you're going to be able to look at this later on as well. When we, uh, we're going to look at some basic anatomy because it's important to look at things three-dimensionally. Dermatologists have a unique opportunity because we do a lot of training in pathology, and we look at, people look at the surface of the skin. I'm always thinking three-dimensionally as well as microscopically, and we're going to be doing that with this as well. Uh, the nail, we often approach two-dimensionally, and you've got to think of the third dimension. You've got to think what's generating the changes you see in the nail plate, nail bed, nail folds. So we're going to kind of look at that. We're going to approach it from a clinical standpoint because that's what comes in your office every day, patients coming in with nail changes. Um, I'm going to focus on a lot of different things. The big three things that I think hopefully you'll take away today is things that you see commonly, uh, psoriasis, you know, how do we deal with a little bit of psoriasis nails? We're going to briefly go over that because there's lots of options. Uh, I'm going to talk about onychomycosis because fungal nail infections are very common as well as uh, uh, not only dermatophyte, but also uh, candida infections. And the last, we're going to talk about pigmentary changes, particularly melanichia, because that's always a challenge when somebody comes in with that pigmented streak in the nail. How do you approach it? Uh, what, what can you do? And we're going to kind of hopefully give you a little bit more guidance on that, because again, it, you're going to find out the jury is still a little bit out. All right, talking about anatomy, um, when you look at it again three-dimensionally, just remember that the nail plate is derived from the matrix. That matrix is that, and we're going to come back to it in a second when we look at the nail plate from, uh, from the uh, upper view. Um, and then you have to look at all the supporting structures, the epinicium, which is basically your cuticle, uh, the supporting structures, which, again, is not only the nail bed underneath, but also uh, the nail folds on the side. And you're basically making an, an enclosed unit. It's basically meant to be closed off from the environment. Uh, but unfortunately, there are things that will breach that integrity, and that causes a lot of havoc. Uh, in the nail as well. Don't forget the anchoring there, the ligamentary changes, and the ligamentary changes are actually relevant when we talk about psoriasis because the nail pitting that you see in, in psoriasis, even in the absence of any changes that you see in the, in the joint, probably are early indicated that they're going to develop some joint disease or getting some subclinical joint disease. So it might behoove us to make sure be a little bit more aggressive about approaching our psoriasis patients that have nail changes in the absence of clinical uh, joint changes. All right, so when we look down on the nail, basically you're looking down at the, at the structures you see on the top of the slide there. Uh, the nail bed is what everybody's familiar with. If the matrix is that white part and the proximal part that extends right from the proximal nail fold, uh, and that's called the lunula, and that is the matrix. That's where a lot of the action is happening from inflammatory changes to the nail. Uh, so when you're thinking of look, seeing the change in the nail plate, be thinking of the matrix primarily. Now, we also know that nail fold changes, whether they're lateral or proximal, can also affect that nail plate uh, integrity as well. So again, when you're looking at it from that top-down view, look at this, the picture below and be thinking three-dimensionally what's going on underneath there. And that's going to help us kind of guide us in terms of the pathology uh, that we're going to be seeing now for the next about 45, 50 minutes. And again, you know, from just nomenclature, lunulates, that visible part of the matrix that does extend underneath the proximal nail fold. Uh, the nail bed goes all the way out to the uh, eponychium, uh, to the hyponychium to the very end. The onychodermal band is that transition zone where that nail plate detaches from the airblind nail bed, uh, but it still is going to be intact. We're going to talk about how people love to traumatize uh, their nails. They tack their nails all the time. I, I, I love what people do uh, to their skin and to their nails, and we're going to talk about the damage they do there. And then the final product thing is going to be the nail plate. All right, 
enough anatomy. Now we're going to get into clinical medicine. We're going to talk about the different onychopathy. We're going to divide it into three different areas to make it easy. Nail fold changes, nail bed changes, nail plate changes. Starting with nail folds, I'm going to kind of get into these categories. We're going to look at changes that you see that causes swelling, erythema, color change, and then, of course, uh, symptomatic changes as well. Under the swelling, we're going to look at infection. We're going to look at connective tissue diseases that can do it. And then there's something called retronychia that's been showing up in the literature recently, which is actually a, probably a traumatic injury uh, that results in a retrograde growth or movement of that nail plate before it grows back out again. So one of the common things we all see here are acute perinichias. Perinichias are usually divided in two categories, both acute and chronic. Acute perinichias are almost bacterial and to have proven otherwise. How do you discern them? You look at the nail plate. You don't see nail plate changes, you're dealing with an acute perinichia. If you see nail plate changes, you're dealing with a chronic perinichia. You know that by definition. It refers to the swelling of the nail plate, but it usually has to do with a breach in the integrity of the way the nail fold, either the lateral or the proximal nail fold, attaches to the nail. So when that happens, then it allows the bacteria to get underneath there. So that usually is characterized with an acute onset of pain. This brings people into the office quickly, within a, usually a few days, because of the discomfort. Chronic perinichia, they show up a few weeks to a few months later because the pain is not that uncomfortable. Uh, this usually within a couple of days, they're, they're in your office. Most common pathogen is staph. When I was training back in the dark ages, we see a lot of strep, particularly strep viridens, alpha strep, because that's what you have in your mouth. People like to chew on their cuticles, chew on their nails, stick their fingers in their mouth. They get the strep that way as well. Uh, pseudomonas, because it's a wet bug, and anybody does a lot of wet work, whether you're in the medical profession, whether you're in the service industry, for the food industry, uh, produces as well. And then um, you get some gram negatives every once in a while because people often don't wash their hands after they've gone to the bathroom, and they'll pick up a lot of fun gram negatives. Uh, treatment options, you know, doxycycline tends to be our mainstay. Uh, I use a lot of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for treatment of this. Streptococcal, you have a lot more options. Mupiracin also is helpful, especially for staph, because a lot of these patients are going to be staph carriers. And where does your finger often end up? In your nose. Okay, so you definitely want to do, thank you, you're welcome. Uh, when, when I was in medical school, you know, I had this professor, and he was actually voted like the, you know, best teacher, and he was a good old boy from Virginia, and he talked to the southern exit. You know what the most common cause of nosebleeds are? Sticking your finger in your nose. You've got to get your finger out of there. And the same thing happens with these individuals. It's usually the dominant finger that's going in the nose. So you definitely have to put a little bit of mupiracin up there unless you want to use the, the Altabax. All right. Psoriasis, reactive arthritis syndrome, can also cause proximal nail fold and can mimic an acute perinichia. I just saw somebody recently with herpetic whitlow. When you have a perinichia in the same location over and over again, you should consider the possibility of herpes simplex as being an etiologic agent, uh, particularly for people that don't always wear gloves or people that uh, are in a situation where they're doing a lot of skin-to-skin -skin contact. So, clinical challenge for you. I got a 45-year-old house cleaner, presents with a two-day history of a tender, swollen finger after chewing off a hangnail. She cleans a house with 13 toilets. I actually have been to the house. It does have 13 toilets. I didn't actually go around and count all of them. Uh, she's otherwise healthy. No, it is not my house. You're welcome. All right, so it's kind of subtle, but I think you can see some of the changes here in the proximal nail fold. So the clinical challenge to you in the next few seconds is tell me which one of these choices, A through I, would you pick? you got a choice in there on the top of some antibiotics. You have a couple of antifungal, you have an antiviral, and then you can go big with a systemic. All right. Oh, do I get to continue that, Brian, or you do it? All right, we're on it. Good. 
cool. All right, time is almost up. All right, so I'm going to go back. What do we have for answers, Brian? Do we have anything yet? Nah, you guys are too slow. I got it. I, it's right for lunch. I understand. I'm going to hold it to you. Anything to populate, Brian? Keep going. I got it. All right. So this patient grew out not just MRSA. She also grew out E. coli and Klebsiella. All kinds of fun things are growing in toilets in this house. Uh, good news, she was able to start on trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, and put her on rifampin. The reason I do rifampin is that rifampin is basically an antibiotic enhancer. So if you're worried about um, making sure that you have a more robust, it's almost giving like somebody IV antibiotics when you add rifampin. It's uh, 300 milligrams twice a day for five days. Um, the other thing it does, it also gets rid of the staph uh, carrier state, regardless of whether it's nasal or carried somewhere else in the body. So that's another little trick you can do when you add rifampin onto your antibiotic regimen. Chronic perinicias, by comparison, are usually result from a variety of, again, wet work, anything that's going to breach the integrity. It's more common in people that have an underlying immunosuppressive problem, such as diabetes. That's the most common patient that we see, but anybody that's immunocompromised is going to be increased risk. Uh, you can definitely tell that there's swelling. Uh, you see detachment of the cuticle from the, uh, to onto the nail plate. Um, and there's a little bit of mild tenderness. Sometimes you get a little bit of exudate coming out, but not always. Uh, you can sometimes see it on multiple fingers, and you can see here that you have the nail plate changes. Um, so once again, this would be something that would be uh, more of a problem. Um, so I'm going to come back to this side. Candida is the most common thing that we find in chronic perinicias. Um, it's, remember, this is not a dermatophyte. Uh, it's actually considered to be a type of hand dermatitis, so I'm going to come back to this in just a second. Um, and when you take, restore the physiologic barrier, uh, then you actually, uh, actually can make this go away, which leads me to something here in a second. So there's a really interesting study showing that topical steroids versus systemic antifungals uh, in an open double dummy study, and they basically just see how they compare in efficacy. And the conclusion was that topical steroids are more effective than systemic antifungals for treatment of chronic perinicia. Um, and that's actually been sort of my experience in, uh, uh, in treating chronic uh, perinicia is that you have to treat the underlying problem. These are people that are doing a lot of wet work, uh, and their skin gets dry, they get the cracks, and it allows a breach in there. Classic example, I have a 16-year-old female comes in, presents a few months history, single tender fingernail, was given first cephalexin, trimethoprim, sulfamethoxol, no improvement, went to infectious disease. They recommended that she get a PICC line put in uh, to be treated. She comes to me for second opinion. So this is one of my patients. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at nails. Pretty good. So at this point, I said, look, we're going to put you on fluconazole you know, weekly, and then we're going to maybe continue once a week for the next few months. And she comes back in three months later and now looks like this. Man, am I good or what? Thank you. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, okay, we're going to go to plan B. So, you know, coming up the question again, what's going on? Did I miss the diagnosis? Is this not a uh, yeast infection? Is it a uh, staph? Is it a gram negative? Is it a dermatophyte? Or is this something factitial going on? Is she digging and picking and she have some kind of stress thing? Any thoughts on this one? We're going to give you a few seconds to see if you can figure out what's going on. Brian and I worked on the playlist, so I hope you to keep you awake. You're welcome. There you go. Ooh, see, that's what I'm thinking as well. Actually, believe it or not, I just missed the diagnosis. Again, this is somebody that, these are all topical treatments, antifungal. I actually placed her on a topical steroid. She cleared up. Okay, so this is, again, an example where it's not intuitive that you would treat an infectious etiology with a topical steroid. But again, usually a potent topical steroid, one that's halogenated, and uh, she actually got better. 
So just as something to add to your armamentarium. Antifungals can work, but when they don't, you've got to go to the next step. All right, we're going to talk about nail fold color changes. The two big things here are going to be telangiectasia uh, and abnormal nail fold capillaries. Uh, you've had, I think you had some dermoscopy earlier talking about looking at nail folds. A lot of times patients will be sent to us because they want to rule out a connective tissue disease, scleroderma, lupus, dermatomyositis. Just need to be familiar with the dilated loops that you're going to see with those. Uh, early changes can definitely lead to things going on. Anytime you have a disease process, you want to get it in early in terms of being uh, more proactive in terms of uh, treating these individuals. Um, and again, you look for these dilatation uh, of the capillary loops that are there as well. Um, there are some actually different types of capillary loop changes, if you want to get into it a little bit, that are more predictive for systemic sclerosis. Uh, but you can see also changes with dermatomyositis and mixed connective tissue disease as well as lupus. So just to be aware to look at proximal nail folds. And sometimes you can see with the naked eye, often you have to use it with magnification. Doesn't necessarily be dermoscopy, but it needs to be some magnification. We're going to move into nail plate pathology. All right, looking at different morphologic changes, then we're going to get into color changes here in a minute. Morphologic changes, the most common one we're going to talk about here is longitudinal ridging. We're going to look at crumbling, thickening, brittle changes, um, and then other. I always like other. So the most common thing that people come into my office, they ask me about, Doc, tell me about these ridges that I have in my nails. And they're basically talking about these longitudinal ridges that come down the nail plate, extending all the way down. And it looks like there's, I tell patients, it looks like there's a wrinkle in that nail plate because guess what? There is. Just as skin will age with maturity, your nails age with maturity. And I say, this is a sign of maturity. We don't have any aging in my practice. We use, we use a lot of euphemisms. We use a lot of bad metaphors, but we never tell people they're getting older. They're just getting more mature. Not necessarily wiser, but more mature. So again, normal aging changes need to recognize that. And what do you do for it? Glad you asked. You just give them a pat on the back, head for the door. I give them, if they want something to do, I'll give them a retinoid. Retinoids make skin get better. In theory, they should be able to make the, uh, um, these better. I give them, it gives them something to do for several months, and it gets them out of my office. Um, <laughs> that's the secret. Now they're happy. I'm happy. Nails are happy. All right, clinical challenge. Get your phones ready. 46-year-old dentist presents with evaluation of chronic hand dermatitis, one-year duration. Standard patch testing is negative. High-potency steroid controls it, but doesn't clear it. No rashes anyplace else. No medications. And... Here he is at this dentist, and these, these are tough hands to work with. It's tough hands to work with when you're in the health profession to have hands that are cracked and fissured. Um, back of the hands, a little bit on the knuckles, but uh, on the MCP, PIP joints, but not a whole lot going on. All right, differential, what do we got? I'll give you a couple seconds to work on this. If you have any requests for playlists, be sure to give it with Brian in the back. He wants to know. All right, so everybody thinks this is a dermatophyte. You know, everything is a dermatophyte until proven otherwise, and I agree that this should be KOH'd. Uh, all you have to do is get burned once in somebody that you didn't KOH, and then you're totally embarrassed, it'll never happen again. And it, it's happened to me before uh, as well. But so now anything that scales goes into the microscope. Um, in this particular case, though, you can see this is actually psoriasis. So the bonus question is, if you were thinking about where else you look, where else would you look? And of course, I'll give you a few seconds, and if you don't get this right, then you're sitting in the wrong lecture. Thank you, that was the hint. I'm glad you're paying attention a little bit. Thank you. 
Right. Oh, this reminds me of a lecture I went to where I intentionally put down the wrong answer just to be annoying to the presenter. Thank you so much. All right, so the answer is uh, yes, nails. Oh, God. All right, this is going to be a long lecture. I can see this already. Yeah, so indeed, you flip over, you look at the hands, you see a nail pitting, and indeed, this patient had psoriasis, cerebral diagnosis. Going back clinically, was there any other clues? Glad you asked. Uh, the answer is, when you look at this, how do you tell a contact dermatitis? And it's going to be a little bit subtle, but... It, these areas of scaling are fairly well demarcated, okay? And usually when you have a contact dermatitis um, or um, atopic dermatitis, it's not well-defined. So when I see the plaque like this being well-defined, you should be thinking psoriasis. All right, Brian, move me. Continue. Thank you, sir. Ugh, one more time for me. All right. Moving along, additional histories, also the patient was undergoing a divorce, a lot of hand washing, and of course trauma initiates this as well. So you had the triple, triple effect on there as well. All right, so people that come in with nail plate psoriasis, the topical treatments work. Not everybody wants to be on systemic, okay? Uh, and that's fine, I'm good with that. The answer is the, there is some data to suggest that you can do topical therapy, everything from potent topical steroids, calcitriene, calcitriol, uh, tazeratine can all be effective. The nail plate is more porous than the skin, so it's actually easier to get drugs through, believe it or not, but the problem is the thickness to get down to the base of that matrix, it, take, it takes a lot to get there. It probably does better under occlusion. If you're going to do some topical therapy and they want to be busy, it's inconvenient to wear gloves. A lot of times I'll have them put on at bedtime and then put a piece of duct tape over it, uh, take it off in the morning, and that will, the occlusion itself will help quite a bit as well. Uh, I'm going to tell you the biggest problem, though, I see with psoriasis patients, and it comes back with systemic treatment as well, you will see probably 50% of your patients respond favorably. Uh, a variety of companies now have NAPSI scores. NAPSI is a nail area psoriasis severity index score uh, with improvement. If you follow their studies out, though, beyond about two years, you start seeing some fall off. Probably for two reasons. One is that trauma, because the nails, as they get better, they start using them and they traumatize them, and the kevnarizes once again. And the second reason is probably the Steve Feldman syndrome. Anybody that knows Steve Feldman down at Wake Forest um, lectures on this, and he says the number, the top three reasons that people fall off for treatment of psoriasis. Number one is compliance, number two is compliance, and number three is compliance. And what happens is they get better, they stop using their medications, and when that happens, then they get some fall off as well. Um, so. Any of the topicals and systemics can potentially work. It's just a matter of what the patient's comfort level is, where your comfort level is using the, the systemic treatment as well. 71-year-old, um, we've got another clinical challenge for you. Painful growth on his feet, only there for six years. This is going to be pretty subtle, but I think you can make these out. Okay, so that, if anybody here has a toe fetish, I'll give you his number on the way out. Okay, these are his feet. Very difficult and uncomfortable to walk on. All right. So I'm going to give you a few seconds to figure out what's going on here. Has he got a keratoderma? Has he got a whopping dermatophyte? Does he just not ever bend over and clean those feet? Yikes. So keratoderma would be, all these things are reasonable in the differential diagnosis, which is why I put them there. Um, skin biopsy showed psoriasis. Now, how do you treat this? I didn't put down amputation. I was tempted to do that. Okay, and basically, uh, somebody with this severity disease, I think, needs systemic treatment um, as well. So again, topical therapies, potent steroids, urea cream with occlusion, but this is just going to be a systemic treatment. It just depends on what his uh, underlying health issues are and what his comfort level is in terms of which systemic one we end up throwing at him. 
Um, nail plate differential, okay, most common thing we're gonna see is infection. The difficult part is we have people that come in all the time with dystrophic nails and they think they're infected and they're not, okay? And the question is, is it psoriasis? Uh, is it trauma? Is it something else that's going on? And the other two are gonna be psoriasis and of course in trauma. The problem is psoriatic nails have twice the incidence of dermatophyte because the nail integrity is not intact anymore. So you can actually have onychomycosis superimposed on the psoriasis as well. Uh, normal water content in the nails around 18% depending where you live. If you're up here in Seattle, water content is going to be a little bit higher than it is if it's going to be down in Arizona. Uh, other problem, we're gonna, and we're going to come back to that in a second. Other problem we see a lot is onychoschizia. Okay, schizia means, you know, if you think of schizophrenics and quote-unquote split personalities, these are nails that have lamellar splitting, and this is chronic, chronic wet-dry situations. So this is not necessarily being in water, it's being in water, dry, and, it, and over time it basically causes lamellar splitting of the plate. Um, and the trick is you have to protect the nail, uh, obviously keep it out of a wet environment as much as possible, sometimes putting on a top coat will be helpful, Sometimes moisturizing the nail with a barrier. <clears throat> I use Aquaphor. Sometimes I use uh, Vanaply. I use the CeraVe healing ointment. Whatever your favorite grease is, uh, petroleum jelly, Crisco. I use them all. I do use Crisco. It's all natural. Pa my patients love things that are all natural. So I say, go get a jar of Crisco. They're happy. All right, onychomycosis is something we see in our practices all the time. Uh, many different clinical variants, which I've noted here for you, whether it's proximal, distal, subungual, uh, or, or yeasty, beastie. Um, the incidence is about 10% of the population, but as you get older, the incidence goes up markedly. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of the history of dermatophytes. Dermatophytes are just a fascinating story. Uh, they did not exist in this country 100 years ago absolutely did not exist. Yeah, exactly. In fact, if you go into the annals of in, in France in the, like the turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s, they was actually presenting cases of, of, of tinea corporis as a grand rounds because it was such an exotic case. Turns out the dermatophytes all come from Southeast Asia and were slowly spreading around the world with the advent of international travel and steamships. Uh, but they got their really takeoff and the, the first reports in this country start showing up Believe it or not, so not surprising, after World War I, uh, people were coming home from being in the trenches and everybody with all these other troops, and they brought all this dermatophyte back. So every dermatophyte we see now is all from World War I. So kind of interesting how that all came through there. Um, anyway, how do you make the diagnosis? KOH is easy. Uh, you know, a lot of times you have, in the old days, we used to have insurance companies before they do systemic treatment want to qualify, so we would do a clipping of the nail. Uh, I don't do culture anymore because you have to wait a month or two to grow something out, and a lot of times you've got a mold contamination. So I do a nail clipping, PAS, then I have something I send to the insurance company, but nowadays we don't have to do that, um, and I'll explain why. There's a really a lot of inexpensive ways to do it. Unfortunately, there are a lot of things that you see here that look like onychomycosis, which is why I do nail clippings, because I sometimes I'll say, you know, don't this look like dermatophyte? And indeed, it can be signs of psoriasis, like in planus. Um, onychogryphosis is basically that last guy with poor nail care. Traumatic onychodystrophy is the most common one you're going to see. People come in with deformed nails. Um, the best thing to do to have a deformed nail is wear shoes and a shoe with a heel. That is a godsend to podiatrists. They would be out of business if they got rid of shoes and, and heels. Um, in fact, dermatophyte doesn't exist in, in tropical and subtropical countries because people don't, around there that don't wear shoes never get it. So the only way you can do it is put in a nice, dark, enclosed environment. So just run around barefoot and you'll be fine. Um, we'll come back to that in a minute. So again, there's a couple of systemic treatments that are available, terbenafin and itraconazole, they're both FDA approved. Uh, but a lot of patients come in and say, I don't want to take that stuff that's going to damage my liver. 
Um, and the answer is, do they damage the liver? And the answer is, probably not. And there's a way to do it so you can get around it. So itraconazole, uh, just remember he hits that cytochrome 3A4. Terbenafin uh, is 2DA, 2D6, excuse me. Um, and it doesn't has, has less drug interactions. Uh, the interesting thing is that uh, they actually have a different mechanism of action, how they get into the nails, which I'm going to show you in just a second. Griseofulvin is great for your pediatric population. Uh, it's not well absorbed unless you micronize it. So always write for the micronized form of griseofulvin when you're giving it to them. Uh, it can have other drug interactions as well. Remember, ketoconazole and fluconazole, uh, it says are, but they are not approved for onychomycosis. Um, so how do I treat onychomycosis? I, I take Zaius's, um uh, formulation, which is where you take uh, terbenafin on a quarterly basis. So they did this study, and they looked at whether you give it uh, at intervals of once, actually once a month, every two months, every three months, every four months. And what they found is, is that you had about a 93% cure rate if you take it for one week every three months. One week every three months. One pill a day for seven days. So the way you get around this and make it really cheap, and, and that way if you do it for a week, you don't have to do any blood testing because if you do it, they're off the drug anyway for the next three months, so it's irrelevant. I've never had any issues in the, in the years I've been using it. Uh, the other thing, too, is if you go to Walmart, and in my town, there's a, another pharmacy called High, excuse me, a, a grocery store called High V. It's on the $4 prescription list, but I think it's on the $4 prescription with Walmart everywhere. So I write for daily dosing, 30 pills, but I give them a separate piece of paper to say, take it for seven days every three months. So for $4, I can clear their toenails 93% of the time, okay? Um, and with two pills left over, okay, or for a dollar a week. So I think most everybody can afford that, most everybody. So that's kind of a neat trick. Itraconazole, uh, the way they did it, they did pulsing. We did two pills, uh, uh, 200 milligrams twice a day for the first week of the month for three pulses. They actually did a study and showed that six pulses does better uh, than three pulses. So if you're going to use itraconazole for your terbenafin failures or if you just want to go to that, just remember that probably six months is better. Uh, if you're using fingernails, three months is all you need. Um, and because of the half-life of the dose, for the smaller patients, you can reassess them after three months to see if you want to do it. Um, but again, it turns out that it, the reason we do that in back there is that it turns out that uh, Lamisil gets into the nails fairly quickly. It takes uh, usually a month or two for itraconazole to build up into the nails as well. Now, patients don't want to use terbenafin or fail it. People don't want to use itraconazole because it's too expensive. Fluconazole also can be pulse-dosed either, and I do usually 300 milligrams once a week, okay? And it has, again, about an 80% success rate uh, for fingernails and about a 60% rate for, for toenails. What I usually do is I write for 30 pills. I write it for once a day. I give them a separate piece of paper and say take three pills a week. That way they get 10 weeks for one copay. Um, and taking it once a week, there's no interactions that I have to worry about. Occasionally, you'll get a call back saying that they're on a statin drug. You're not supposed to be on an azole when you're on a statin drug. I usually tell them, on that day you take your uh, pills, you can skip your statin drug. I don't know if you know you don't have to take your statin drugs every day. They have a long half-life, so I'm not going to put them in harm's way by doing that. But I'm going to make their nails really happy. All right, so comparison. Terbenafin is definitely the best treatment of all compared to the other ones on the market. Itraconazole is definitely better to all the topicals. Um, but if you can want to do the pulse dosing for fluconazole, you can do that as well. Uh, I don't use a lot of nail lacquers. Um, I think the best thing you get from nail lacquers is nail care. Actually, people can bend over and actually start taking care of their feet. And I think that's probably about 90% of the battle for a lot of these individuals. Most of them haven't seen their feet in years uh, or been anywhere near them. 
Um, so, yeah, if you don't want to get that mani-pedi, then you just got to, it's good exercise. Pilates. All right. Texture changes. Going to talk about lichen planus a uh, little bit. 20 nail. Anika tilamenia basically just means people that chew on their nails. Um, and we're going to come back and talk about that in a second. So trachonicchia, you're going to see a little bit um, occasionally, mostly in your pediatric population. Usually all nails are involved. They have this rough texture, often referred to as 20 nail dystrophy. Um, and it can be fairly extensive. The inflammation is there. We do not recommend doing a biopsy. This is a clinical diagnosis. The other reason we don't do a biopsy is we don't want to leave any scarring. We don't want to traumatize the kids. And the good news, this one's a self-limited course. This usually gets better over a period of a few years. Most of the kids outgrow this. So when you see this, you can recognize it because it has this rough texture, especially in your pediatric population, and just reassurance is the only thing necessary. Can you treat it? The answer is you can. You can use it with a topical steroid. Um, you can use calcipatriol, um, like as a, uh, the branded version of Taclinex or the generic of it. You can use calcipatriol by itself. Uh, you can probably, because it's thought to be a cousin of, of lichen planus, uh, use something like off-label like uh, tacrolimus, picrolimus, um, or one of the other uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. All right, pitting usually uh, indicates a loss of the nail integrity of the upper part of the growth, growth plate from the proximal nail matrix. Usually it's para, parakeratin granules that kind of fall out and leave this. There was actually something in there, and it left, and that leaves that indentation that's there. Uh, just to let you know, psoriasis is the most common thing, but not the exclusive thing. So just because you have pitting doesn't mean you necessarily have psoriasis. Uh, alopecia areata is the other classic one. So you have people that have hair loss and you're not certain. Often look at the fingernails, and if you get lucky, you can see changes there as well. These are some of the other causes that uh, uh, have been associated with, uh, some of the other diseases have been associated with this as well. Onychoschisia, we talked that before. And again, this is this repeated hydration, dehydration. Um, and they thought it actually may be due to solvents, but it's actually just water. It seems to be the major culprit, not so much uh, other things that people are exposed to. Uh, Onychoschisia, again, biotin, we do use that. I use it in my practice. It, it does make nails, as you can see here, thicker and a little bit stronger, and it seemed to decrease splitting. That was reported in the Blue Journal um, way back in the day. So uh, we tell people to take a little bit of biotin. It does help hair. Uh, integrity as well. So there's no downside to doing it, but it's really getting rid of the, the, the physical barrier, the offensive part that does it, but it's one little trick that we do. Bose lines, nail and tick habit injury are all incidents of ridges. These are transverse ridges that are going across the nail. Um, Bose lines are the traditional one that we see, and this is uh, after an inflammatory, something that um, uh, impedes uh, the, the growing part of the matrix. So this can be anything from childbirth, surgery, uh, high fevers, um, chemotherapy. Those are the classic ones. Uh, it could also be trauma. Uh, that'll do it as well. So, and, you get, and when you look at this, everybody knows, well, hopefully everybody knows, it takes about six months to grow out a fingernail. So if you're looking at this, you can see the injury was about six to eight weeks prior, whenever the event was that was there. And you, and you can look like you're a magician when you go in there and say, oh, so you had your surgery back in, let's see, was that April? Is that about right? Like, how did you know that? You know, and we're going to in the last slide, I'll tell you how we knew that. All right, so nail plate, longitudinal splitting, we see this a little less commonly. Most common thing we see are tick habits. Tick habits are people that like to play with their cuticle, nervous habit. And you'll see this all the time. They sit there, uh, usually take their index finger and play with their thumb or, or other finger. And when you traumatize that proximal um, nail fold, you're hitting right on top of the uh, uh, matrix and you're traumatizing and causing the indentations in the plate 
um, as well. So this is an OCD behavior. OCD behaviors are very difficult to control. Uh, you, sometimes you can use SSRIs. I've found hypnosis to be very helpful for patients that are amenable to it. I work with PhDs in my community that uh, are certified PhD psychologists that are hypnotists. Uh, and, you know, it's usually nice because it's one and done because it's, it's a single visit and they hypnotize you and you're done. So it's good for nail biting, uh, tick habits, smoking, whatever compulsive behavior that you may end up having. Median nail dystrophy is a little bit more uh, confusing. People really understand this. They, it, you'll see if you go in the literature there, that median nail dystrophy gets lumped in with tick habits, but they're actually a different disease process. And you can see this crack that occurs down there, starting from the proximal nail fold, indicating there's definitely an inflammatory process that, that occurs down through here. Um, this may be one of the times you might want to consider doing a biopsy if it persists, because there's something, uh, definitely an inflammatory process that's going on that affects it. Usually it's symmetrical. It usually starts with the thumbs and then slowly moves down each finger, again, suggesting there's an inflammatory process. Uh, if you read the literature, there's no <clears throat> common etiology in terms of what's going on, nor there's any treatment suggested for it. Most everybody reports this in the literature. Nobody suggests any treatment options. Uh, if I were going to do anything, I'd probably consider doing possibly intralesional uh, Kenalog. I'd probably do a steer in there on a single nail to see how they do. Yes, it is barbaric. Uh, one of my colleagues does it all the time. Uh, his secret is, is that is, you probably know that both the blood vessels and the nerves run down the side of the digit, and he'll actually do a lateral compression for about 15, 20 seconds uh, to the point not only cutting off the blood supply, but he actually is compressing the nerve. And he says he can do subungual injections of Kenalog painlessly. Okay, that's what I know. Yeah, I would suggest trying it on yourself and see how it goes. Just saying, you know, and uh, I send my patients to him when they need intralesional injections because he claims he's painless. I, they don't ever come back to me. I think they're so ticked off. Uh, but, or, and he says, how do they do? He says, oh, I never see him again. They, I, they must be doing great. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Barbaric, bamboo, no, not good. All right, nail plate changes. Cholinichia is, again, something we see not, not commonly, but, again, the, the classic associations, iron deficiency, anemia. Um, you know, you can sometimes see it as a congenital thing. It's been reported with a variety of disease states um, that really causes that, this depression. The etiology of it, I don't think anybody really understands why the nail plate is inverted rather than being convex instead of concave, or concave instead of convex, but it just is. Clubbing is also something we'll see. This is classically seen uh, with pulmonary disease. Um, it's usually due to hypervascularization. Um, I don't think I had it in there as well. And if you want to check for people, just to be aware that there's a couple different ways you can check for it. Uh, one is this uh, Shamroth sign where you look at this diamond shape that you can see there um, on that top picture where you can kind of see the little diamond in there where you don't get that diamond with the clubbing. Love a bond angle uh, just refers to the angle that you see um, as well uh, because it's greater than 180 degrees because the nail is actually bulged up. But usually it's, it's pretty obvious. And it's pretty obvious that these people have pulmonary disease. So this is one of those things you pick up and you feel like you're, you're but if the patients want to know what it is, you can tell them this is related uh, to a change in their microvascular due to their underlying uh, lung disease. Um, how would I treat this? Glad you asked. Um, don't know if there's really any good treatment for it. If I were going to treat it, I'd probably do a Trental. Uh, pentoxifilin. Pentoxifilin is a rheologic agent. I use it as an anti-inflammatory because it does have anti-inflammatory properties against lymphocytes, but it rheologic agent means they make red blood cells more flexible, uh, so it actually would improve blood flow to this area, so it would be less likely because these patients have uh, obviously a lower PO2 uh, sat because of their underlying lung disease, and it's an easy drug to use. 
All right, clinical challenge for you since we're into longitudinal ridging. Healthy patient, groove, one finger, no history of trauma or infection. I'll give you 10 seconds to figure this one out. Yes. Good, well done. This is indeed a digital mucus cyst. We do see these all the time. These are considered to be a herniation from the uh, distal interphalangeal joint. So if you poke them, it's so much fun because you get the yeah, synovial fluid. And as I told this, this is, this is the Mother Nature's uh, lubricant, silicone. It's uh, really fun. I let the patients play with it. It's really kind of cool. Um, I do. I let them play with this. Isn't this cool? It's greasy. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, how do you get rid of them? Uh, lots of different things have been suggested. You can try cryo. Good luck with that because you have to really do a deep freeze because this extends all. It's basically a tunnel that extends all the way to that joint space. When you flex it forward, it, it bulges that way. So I always flex the finger when you freeze it so you can get down into that joint space. If that doesn't work, you can try using intralesional kenalog because this is usually due to an inflammatory response that caused that herniation out of that synovial space. Uh, sometimes you get lucky. Usually what I end up doing is I do a punch, and I do like a two or three millimeter punch just trying to follow that tunnel down, take a single stitch, pull it together. If that doesn't do it, then I send them to the hand surgeon because they usually have to go inside the joint, find out what's going on in there, but always small stepwise fashion and make it work for the patient. And you will see this on the toes as well. Uh, but surgery has a pretty good high cure rate. All right, color changes. Getting into some meat here. All right, white changes. Um, we're going to talk about all different types of leukonychias here, and then a couple other things. So true leukonychia is this uh, leukonychia punctata, and that's the one where you see the little white floating clouds that go down the nail plate, usually due to retained perikeratosis, uh, usually due to trauma, normal variant, nothing to worry about. People say, I didn't used to have this, and then you can try to find what activity they're doing that now allows it to start happening, but reassurance is the only treatment. Uh, the only treatment that's probably available and that probably works. Superficial white onychomycosis is another thing that will turn the nail plate white. The problem is that some of these will also be subungual or in the plate as well. Technically, you can just scrape off the top of this with a slide. Your KOH is always going to be positive. If it's just superficial, technically you should be able to put on uh, an antifungal. The, the, the two topical antifungals that I, or the antifungal classes, the broad ones are azoles and alilamines. The alilamines are slipperier. That's the lamisil, the naphtaphene, uh, um, and uh, there's another one that used to be called mentax. It's a benzylamine. Uh, for patients that want to do over-the-counter, you know, lamisil is over-the-counter. The other one that's available over-the-counter that works great is Lotrimin Ultra. That used to be called mentax. It's an alilamine. has nothing to do with clotrimazole, but that's another option for them if they want to do topical therapy. But I usually end up going to systemic just to play it safe. In the, in the older days, before we had our HIV population um, under control that used to be associated with an HIV. Same thing with uh, proximal, especially with proximal superficial white onychomycosis. Again, because of the difficulty in telling how deep this goes, we usually end up treating them systemically, and these patients usually respond very well because it's a more superficial on average. Mies lines are something you just need to be aware of. Um, these are usually after some kind of heavy metal exposure. Uh, it can also happen if you're suffering from uh, renal insufficiency. It's also been reported in uh, chemotherapy patients where you get these bands that go across the nail plate. Uh, and, and this corresponds with how often they're getting their chemotherapy, usually once a month. So you see multiple bands that go across. All right, we're going to talk about black changes. Now we're going to get into the, one of the uh, 
uh, heavy hitters. Uh, and there's lots of things that can cause nail plate changes. It can be due to racial preference, could it be to trauma, whether it be from radiation uh, or otherwise. It can be the different things you ingest. It can be from outside influences as well. And of course, we're going to get down to melanocytic here in a minute. So melanicias are, are something that we see in the office very commonly. <clears throat> we see these patients that come in all the time, and they said, I just noticed this black spot on my toe, and, uh, and I, you know, I actually had my, one of the physicians that worked next door came in with a spot like this on his toe, and I said, you know, I think this is subungual, you know, uh, hematoma, I think it's blood. He says, I still want a biopsy, which I did for him, and it came back, of course, a subungual hematoma. Uh, but, you know, with dermoscopy or just magnification, you should be able to tell that this is not... Uh, a melanocytic lesion, but it is indeed blood. Um, this is a photograph that my son sent me, and I told him he, he was going to live another day. So I, I'm sure nobody here ever gets any pictures sent to them from friends or family. Yeah, right. And you're not medically legally responsible for any of it, so don't worry. You're fine. All right. Uh, on that happy note. So first thing you want to do is find out what's going on. What's causing the pigment? Um, is it due to something endogenous or exogenous? In this particular case, this is an uh, auto mechanic, and this is all grease stained. So good news, he's going to live. All right. So is the question is, if it is melanin, though, is it due to melanocytic activation or proliferation? Activation just basically says <clears throat> the melanocytes are working overtime because something is stimulating them, but the melanocytes themselves are normal number and appear to be normal histologically. Uh, as opposed to proliferation, which means all of a sudden you have a proliferation of melanocytes. Hopefully they're normal because it can be an anevis or it can be due to something else as well. Um, so again, you look at the number of digits. If more than one digit's involved, that's a good sign. Okay, You're thinking more of an activation um, or drug-induced in a particular case. Um, so again, we talked about that as well. Benign proliferations, you're looking for regular patterns, brown-black bands, uniform thickness, regular space, parallel. You see a pattern, okay? And that's a good sign when you see that. And we're going to talk about some patterns we look for. So benign proliferations, light tan, kind of moving up. Everything looks nice and even here. So that part, you feel much better about looking at it. Also look at the edge of the nail, as I'll take you at the edge of the nail to see where the pigment is, and then you have an idea whether it's coming, uh, the pigment seems to be in the top part or the bottom part, so it gives you an idea whether you're dealing with the proximal or distal part of the matrix um, in terms of what's going on. So when you have one digit involved, and now you're getting nervous, and you've got these multiple colors, what are some things you start to look for? Well, you try to look for things that will give you clinical clues, and I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm going to show you a bunch of things, and I'm going to tell you that there's a lot of controversy, and it's not 100% set. So even after all this, I could tell you, I can tell you exactly which ones are benign, which ones are dysplastic, which are in situ, and which are melanoma. Nobody can do that yet, okay, even with dermoscopy. Even at dermoscopy, after you take off the proximal nail fold, incredibly annoying at this point. It's going to get better, but right now, it's just not as robust as we want it to be. They're still working on it, but the jury's still, unfortunately, out there. So one of the things we look for is this Hutchinson sign. When you start seeing pigment creeping back on the proximal nail fold, that's, okay, that's something that means, eh, this probably needs a biopsy. So that's referred to as the Hutchinson sign, when the hyponychium uh, or the eponychium is involved. Uh, age. Okay, when you're a kid, I'm going to say this over and over again, it's usually not a problem. So nail melanoma in children is rare. Um, don't, don't be aggressive about getting uh, <clears throat> nail biopsies in them unless there's something that really is a red flag for you. Uh, this is a four-and-a-half-year-old in my practice that came in uh, with this pigmented streak on there. And again, using uh, dermoscopy in kids is just whatever the criteria is, it doesn't work uh, as it does in adults. So unfortunately, we can't use those as well. So we look for these pigmented bands, and as long as they're parallel and regular, 
um, we feel a little bit about it. So the picture here just kind of looks like more of a nail matrix nevus, which it was in this particular case, that bottom one. All right, other factors that play uh, a role is um, it not only is the age of the individual, because kids are going to be okay, but the older you are, the more likely it is to be an issue if you start developing acquired pigmentation. Here's the dermoscopy patterns here, looking at the width. I like this. I put this in because I thought this, I pulled this out of the literature. So the, the dermoscopic patterns are the width of the band, whether it's more two-thirds of the nail, the presence of gray to black color, the presence of any nail dystrophy. I'm sorry, those aren't dermoscopy. That's just clinical. I can do that with my naked eye. I don't need dermoscopy to see any of those factors. So again, this is just sort of kind of interesting how they, how they put this out here. All right, so again, you, what you do in adults doesn't count. Uh, and here's just an article came in 2013 and said the criteria for benign and malignant are not always reliable. So a lot of times you just kind of have to go by the seat of your pants and, and, and pray. There is something called uh, micro Hutchinson sign, and this is what you see under demoscopy. So basically you're looking for the same thing as the Hutchinson's. Uh, the Hutchinson sign, but you can only see the pigment creeping up on the proximal nail fold with dermoscopy. So it's a kind of a, almost a subtle or almost subclinical, but you can pick it up under magnification. So that's an important sign. The pseudo-Hutchinson sign is basically where it looks like there's pigmentation in the epinechium, but it's actually due to the pigmentation being or, or some other process going on uh, proximal to it. So the overlying, it's like a blue nevus. So the color changes as the, uh, the Tyndall effect as the light rays go through it will give it that sign as well. And that can be due to a variety of things that are benign, but just be aware that um, that can be a characteristic to look for as well. Uh, so criteria, um, age we talked about, African Americans, these are all the A. Uh, Native Americans and Asians have more common uh, acro-litiginous uh, changes that are going to be uh, neoplastic, particularly people in their fifth day, decade and older. Um, the color going from brown to black is not a good sign. Rapid change in the band, something is changing. I often say when people come in, after, I say after the age of 30, as a general rule for, for nevi that I look on the skin, things should not be changing. Um, and again, thumb is, is the, and dominant fingers or one digit are, are also a thing that, eh, probably should check it out. Hutchinson sign is important, and then if you have a family history of atypical moles, melanoma, that's important as well. Uh, this was a patient of mine that I had right before I left my residency. Uh, right before I left, he had brain mats. So another thing that isn't pathognomonic for melanoma but can be seen in lentigo maligna are uh, this non-homogeneous pigmentation and also something called the triangle sign. And what you're supposed to be seeing here, and it's really subtle, is that the band here is a little thicker and darker, and it kind of gets a little thinner as it moves out. And that kind of, it's referred to as, a, I don't really call that a triangle. I don't know what I would call it, maybe the fade sign. But if you see some of the pigment fading off, then that probably should warrant maybe doing a biopsy. But again, not 100%. So, pigmentation. I wish I could tell you exactly what you look for or what not look for. Again, I think you have most of the criteria. If you take anything home, your older patients, your at-risk patients based on ethnicity, changes after the age of 50, uh, first and second digits, those are the ones I'm going to have you worry about, and those are the ones you're going to probably end up going to biopsy. All right, we're going to change from black to green. Uh, Chlorinicchia usually is almost always due to pseudomonas, but can be seen with other organisms as well. Um, I actually saw an enterobacter recently that was putting out a green color. I have no idea where I got the pyocyanin, but it did. Uh, more common people, again, that do wet work. Usually you get onycholysis first, separation of the nail plate from the nail bed, secondary invader with the pseudomonas um, after that. What you want to do is cut the nail back as much as you can. I use a lot of liquid bleach because it kills the pseudomonas. 
and it not only sterilizes it, but it decolors the green color. So you can kill the pseudomonas with Cipro, either oral or topical or genomycin, but you're not going to get rid of the green stain, and the patients don't like the green nails for some reason. I think it's a good look. Um, but anyway, we do go away with just through the bleach. You can do other products as well, um, but the trick is also try to keep them out of wet water and try to create an environment so that nail plate will reattach so it doesn't get water underneath there again. Yellow nail plate, uh, infection, nail polish stains, probably the most common thing I see. The, actually, the true yellow nail syndrome is rare. I see one about every 10 years. Uh, you can see infections causing the yellow nail plate changes. Um, the yellow um, nail syndrome, classically you see people that have usually chronic sinusitis, upper respiratory infections, bronchiectasis, and had a patient that came in that it had a chronic upper respiratory infection for about three months, and his nails started turning yellow. Uh, thought to be due to lymphatic uh, etiology. Vitamin E is the only agent that's been treating uh, yellow nail syndrome, and I have no idea the etiology other than the fact it's possibly working as an antioxidant. You have to give them fairly high doses, 1,000 to 1,200 units a day. Um, you don't want to do that any longer than you have to. If you're familiar with the big study you, in the VA study where they were giving individuals as an anti-cancer heart disease, vitamin E, doses higher than 400 units uh, for longer than a year or so was increased risk for death from both cancer and from heart disease. So it turns out that antioxidants can actually work as pro-oxidants when you take them too high, too long. Blue nails, typically seen, besides the fact cyanosis, you can see it from drugs. The big ones we're gonna, that we use is minocycline and, and antimalarials. Uh, hopefully you're not using a lot of chemotherapy, but if patients are on chemo and they come in, you should just be aware that can cause that bluish hue. Um, and usually with minocycline, I'm just going to go back, this, and nanomillaries, when you go off, the nail colors will, will, go, will get better over time. You're usually measured in months. All right, looking at nail bed pathology. Okay, trauma is the most common thing that we probably see. Infections can be there as well uh, in certain disease states. We're going to do another clinical challenge. 19-year-old presents with evaluation fingernail problems after taking doxy, 100 milligrams twice a day for presumed staph infection, otherwise healthy and now presents with these nail changes. And you can see there, there's kind of a white discoloration in the distal part of the nail. All right, and you got 10 seconds to figure this one out. Excellent, photoonicolysis from doxycycline, well done. Um, so this patient was getting a photoonicolysis from doxycycline. I've also seen kind of photoonicolysis from um, other drugs as well, but doxycycline is going to be the classic one. Don't forget doxycycline, the ultraviolet light that does it is UVA. It goes through on cloudy days, rainy days, comes through glass. So I've had patients that were driving the car, okay, and can develop a photo, uh, photo reaction from the doxycycline. Uh, so just be aware of it. Terry's nails, um, basically that's that little distal uh, band that you see at the end um, that can be seen with a variety of different, liver is the biggest one, but sometimes see with congestive heart failure, just making you aware that these are just variants that, that can be seen with this. Lindsay's or half and half nails are classically seen with kidney disease. Um, so about half of patients with chronic kidney disease will do it as well. And you can start having fun with nails when people come in. You know, it's so often we do the skin exam and we actually don't look at nails. 
Uh, and there's a lot of fun clinical clues, and you can be very reassuring. And when you look at nails, patients really do feel that you're being a little bit more meticulous in your exam. Um, I always uh, go over my patients with a magnifying glass, um, literally with a magnifying glass, and they really love the fact that I'm looking over them that closely. Uh, and part of it is because I'm old and I'm losing my vision, so I need it. But the other thing, too, is it kind of gives me time to kind of go over and pour things, but I can really hone in on things that I need to. So, yeah, definitely look at nails. All right, red nails, basically, uh, retronicheas are seen with a variety of diseases as well. Next time you have your derriere patient come back in, very common, see the nail changes with that. Lichen planus, not as often. I don't see much amyloid. Usually a glomus tumor is tender, you'll know that as well. Um, but there are things that can cause these longitudinal streaks uh, of um, redness that goes down the nail. Connective tissue diseases can cause red lunulas. This is pretty rare. But if you see somebody that's got kind of this erythema, basically probably from increased blood flow in the, uh, in the matrix, just be aware that that can be seen not only with connective tissues, but also with uh, uh, congestive heart failure. Uh, splinter hemorrhages are very common. Uh, classically, the one we always worried about was endocarditis. Uh, I have only seen like one or two cases of endocarditis uh, with it. Uh, most commonly, it's due to, to uh, trauma. Uh, one of my favorite cases that I didn't publish was a woman that came in that got put on hormone replacement, actually became polycythemic from the testosterone, and when her hemoglobin levels got high enough, she actually developed splinter hemorrhages. Once we dropped her hemoglobin back down, it went back to normal. So uh, I have not seen any other associations with polycythemia, but it's probably there. And it might be a paper if you get bored. All right, Murky's nails. Uh, this is kind of a murky diagnosis, I think. Um, and this is basically abnormal vascular architecture, and one of the tricks is that you, uh, they disappear uh, these bands disappear uh, when you apply pressure to the nail plate. So it actually all kind of blanches out. So this is actually thought to be to localize uh, changes in uh, blood flow. It's kind of been associated with hypoalbuminemia, but anything that probably causes um, uh, less oncotic pressure, whether it's low hemoglobin, low albumin, so low protein state can probably be responsible for it as well. Nail bed morphology. We've talked a little bit about onycholysis, and I can do it. I just want to mention in passing, this onychopapilloma is basically this benign tumor. It's considered the most common cause of kind of a localized longitudinal red band that runs down. One of the clinical clues is when you look down here at the underside of the plate, you can see this little hyperkeratotic material, and that's just the clinical clue that you're dealing with this. What you have to do is take the nail plate off. Basically, you curette it out. It's a, this little material, and the nail plate will grow back over, and, and they do fine. But just to be aware that that's what's going on. Uh, we do see, unfortunately, other types of cancers other than melanoma. We see squamous cell carcinoma most commonly around the nail plate, probably an HPV conversion um, as well. This is a patient that has squamous cell carcinoma. Um, trauma can do it. Radiation can do it. Uh, I've seen it in a dentist that from old school that used to hold his, uh, the uh, film in his hand when he used to do x-rays on the teeth uh, and develop changes on the fingers as well. So just be aware that you can see squamous cell carcinomas that will look just like a wart, but it's not a wart. All right, speaking of which, 25-year-old male, clinical challenge, growing lesion, distal index finger, doesn't remember any injury, tender, bleeds a lot. It's only been there a couple weeks. Subtle. Yeah, subtle. So what do you think this is? I'll give you a few seconds to figure this one out. Well done. Pyogenic granulomas indeed bleed like stink, pop up very quickly, uh, rapidly growing. The problem is the only way you can get rid of this is surgery. And when I go in there, I had a patient once that it grew a pyogenic granuloma from the proximal nail fold. So I went in, kind of lightly 
curated it, cauterized it, <clears throat> came back about three weeks later, pygenic granulin was right back again. So this time I went in, and I'm like, I'm going to beat the heck out of this thing. And, and I, I just said, your, your nail plate will probably never come back. Nail plate grew perfectly normal. I have no idea how that happened, except I just, you know, sometimes you're just lucky, and I go with it. So that's what happened. Periungal warts, you probably see one or two of those in your practice once a year. They're, yeah, good luck. Yeah, warts are the bane and the boon of our existence. They bring so many patients in, and it, they're impossible to treat uh, in a painless way, easy way, uh, cost-effective way, because if you get patients that come back in, you treat the warts or in the molluscum, they come back in a month later, uh, I'm going to pay for the second visit? You didn't take care of it the first time? I'm like, you know, I take my car in, I'm like, you know, I'm sorry, your warts are not a car. Um, so, no, you just got to keep going with it. It's kind of annoying. Uh, Peringal warts are a little bit more challenging, um, and uh, you know, how do you treat them? I threw a bunch of different modalities at you. Home remedies, everybody tries home remedies. Uh, hypnosis actually works. Um, garlic extract, there actually was a, a study with garlic extract. I have no idea. It probably keeps the vampires away as well. Uh, I use a lot of duct tape in my practice. I, I know Jerome Litt, um, and I, I actually, it does sort of kind of work. But I do things under the duct tape, uh, which I... A couple of things that I like besides salicylic acid, I use 5-FU, 5-fluorouracil there as well. I use a miquimod uh, in combination with tazeratine. So a miquimod works great if you can get it through the skin. The way you get it through the skin is you add a retinoid, either tretinoin or tazeratine, and then you can really enhance the efficacy, and you put duct tape on it um, as well. But you can see all these modalities. Does, is there any magic towards? Sometimes you do oral therapy. Anecdotally, cimetidine is supposed to be helpful. I give it to parents because you, really what you're doing is you're buying time. Usually these warts eventually just burn and go away. Uh, oral zinc, people buy into that. Uh, the reason why is that people that ever get a cold, ever had the oral zinc that you get, the, the coldies and everything else. Well, colds are caused by a virus. I said, this is caused by a virus. So you can just take the cold medicine and it'll make this disappear and go away. And they go, oh, okay. So they like it. So again, it's, uh, you just got to stay at them. Uh, and I do a lot of intralesional bleomycin. Um, my favorite anecdote, I had a, um, a med mal attorney come in with a 10-year subungual wart uh, that had failed everything. And I told him, I'm going to do intralesional bleomycin. But I said, the only side effect is uh, there's been reports that, you know, if I don't do this right and I get into the artery, that I can necrose the end of your digit. <clears throat> and he said, not a problem. I'll just sue you. <laughs> and he's got this grin. And, he, you know, he's not kidding. Okay. So true story. So it's okay. So he comes in because I, I don't care. I'm, I'm, you know, whatever. So he comes in a month later and, and he, he comes in and literally his head's hanging. How are you? Fine. How's the wart? Gone. Not, not thank you, but it was like, and how's the, how, is your digit still attached? Yeah. I mean, he was like so disappointed that he hadn't lost part of his digit so he could sue me. I'm not ecstatic about the fact this wart that had been there for 10 years was gone. So, you know, some med mal attorneys, whatever. And then, of course, I, we do surgical modalities or lasers, cautery, whatever. Usually I don't like to do those because they scar. And you replace a wart with a scar. It's just as disfiguring and can be just as uncomfortable. So I try to avoid that at all possible. We do some IPL sometimes in the office because it's a non-scarring modality. It's not as aggressive as laser. Uh, but, you know, whatever, whatever uh, as they say, floats your boat. All right. 45, almost to the end here, 45-year-old female comes in from another dermatologist for treatment of her warts. Had a biopsy done, showed warts. Uh, been treated with a laser, didn't respond to cryo. She's healthy, and here's what her fingers look like. Pretty. All right, so uh, what are we going to do? We're going to do more cryo. I'm going to get out my intralesional bleo. Laser it. Repeat the skin biopsy. Duct tape. What do you think? 
repeat the skin biopsy. Well, actually, I do. Actually, that's sort of what I did because what I did was I sent it to another dermatopathologist, uh, and they said, "There's no virus here. This is all trauma." So we ended up giving her duct tape and told her how to manage her OCD behavior, and indeed, she got better. All right, pincer nails. I'm almost done. This is basically this transverse curvature. This is nobody knows what caused it. Almost invariably, it's due to trauma. So when you're born, your nails are nice and flat, and over years, when you put shoes on, you have to wear fashionable shoes. You can't wear those big fat grandmother's shoes or grandfather's shoes because you've got to have that nice skinny toe and you jam them all in there. And guess what that nail plate does? It curves to meet that, uh, to accommodate that outward pressure. So uh, once it gets to this point, you're sort of kind of done except for surgically removing them. All right, last case and then we're done. 55-year-old presents for unexplained weight loss, GI symptomatology for a malignancy workup. He's, uh, his evaluation's unremarkable. He, this is a guy that we admitted to the VA hospital, but when he was in the hospital, he gained weight. He started feeling better. Went home and started losing weight again. So the second time he came back in the hospital, they called the dermatologist. And one of my attendings was, this guy was brilliant. This guy, what I, was like the baseball metaphor, he always swung for the fence. Either he was spot on or he struck out. Okay? Either he was dead on or he just completely missed the diagnosis. So um, he came in and he started looking at these nails. And he saw these changes in the nails. And I'm sorry this is on there, but... It, these are some white bands that are going across. All right. So this is a little bit of out of order, but we're going to make this work, Brian. So where else would you look? Cool. All the above. Yeah, I, we obviously want to look everywhere, but the action was I looked at his armpit. Okay, and what did I see? Anybody? I saw increased pigmentation. All right. What does that mean? So we did hair and nail clippings and found they had excessive levels of arsenic. Turns out he recently got married to a much younger woman, and she did not have any manifestations. This is a true story. Um, so uh, even though they had all their meals together, she wasn't losing weight, and he was just loaded. So um, my attending contacted the local sheriff's office to get a search warrant while, he was, while she was visiting him at the hospital. They lived about 100 miles away. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know what happened to him. I, he was 100 miles away. We just alerted the sheriff's office. He, he couldn't tell us whatever happened. I don't think it ever made the news. But uh, you can use your imagination probably what happened after that. Um, so anyway, dermatologic changes, basically on pigmentation. You can see these hyperpigmented things. If I go back a couple, you can see he's got some spotting, the raindrop appearance in his armpit. Uh, so this guy definitely had mise lines from his arsenic that was confirmed by both hair and nail clippings. And they also got some hair from the wife that showed that she did not have any arsenic. All right, so uh, Dr. Shelley, who's brilliant, said a fortune teller reads the future in a palm, but we can read the past in the fingernail. And okay, and what you go out after this is uh, of no consequence, which make people think you're doing out there. And on that note, thank you so much. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.